0: Being closed on Sunday was never an issue, non-negotiable. I think last year, their average store volume was about $8 million. In terms of how that plays out on the culture, it is an inclusive, open culture. There's no discrimination, but people understand, hey, this, this is what this business stands for. I mean, the corporate purpose is very clear, to glorify God by being a faithful steward. The ball is entrusted to us and have a positive influence on all that come in contact with Chick-fil-A.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast, where we're bringing the best and the brightest from the business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Steve Robinson, former CMO of Chick-fil-A. Today, Steve is a consultant, author, and speaker on organizational culture design and leadership brand strategy development, and so much more. Steve was with Chick-fil-A for over 30 years. Wow. And during Steve's tenure, Chick-fil-A grew from 184 stores and 100 million to over 2,100 stores and 6.8 billion and became one of the most iconic brands of our time. And prior to joining Chick-fil-A, he served as a director of marketing for Six Flags over Georgia Theme Park in Atlanta. And there's a lot to cover, and I want to take full advantage of my time with Steve. So let's get to it. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Good to be here. Well, thank thank you so much for, for joining me. And and thank you for working with me um, as we work through some of the technical issues, which I always say is is just part of par for the course when we set it up here. But I really think that also ha- helps set the stage for a for conversation. And it shows about just being patient and letting the process work. So before I even jump in, I got to ask you, what's the story with the painting behind you?
0: Oh, oh, that is a... Um... <sighs> A custom painting by uh, Penley. That was done. uh, That was paid for by my my department staff as a going away gift when I retired in 2016. So I,
1: I love it. It's gorgeous.
0: It hangs in a prominent spot here in my office. You
1: bet, and it makes for a fantastic background for for a, a year, video huh? podcast. <laughs> it does. So I want to I want to hit the rewind button, and I've, if I had "This Is Your Life" theme music, um, so Steve, take it way back before the chicken, before the amusement parks, and the calculators. I'd love to share with my audience where Steve Robinson is from. What was it like growing up in, in Foley, Alabama?
0: Foley, Alabama. Well, Foley, Alabama, for those that don't know, is about ten miles north of Gulf Shores. I didn't go to the beach much. Uh, my dad was an um, entrepreneur um, after he finished at Ohio State. He got married So my mother. He moved to Foley in 1948, and I was born in 1950. And he started down there a hybrid seed corn business. Um, and what is,
1: is that corn- for anybody who's not familiar?
0: That's the, you plant that, you raise that corn, and then you plant that corn for livestock feed. Um, and he, he had a franchise with Funk, F-U-N-K, major hybrid seed corn company. So most of my childhood, I grew up working and hanging around the business, um, working in fields, helping him repair equipment, uh, drying corn, bagging corn. It was a great experience going with him when he went out to try to recruit and hire talent to work in his business. Um, Watch the ups and downs of the economy and the price of grain, et cetera. So uh, it was a small town, about 5,000 people back then. Foley now is booming because of, because of the beach. A lot of people have moved to, uh, to
1: beach town.
0: Uh, the, bo- the beach area south of town. And, but it was terrific. Had a great experience there.
1: So I think there's a couple of things to actually unpack there, which I think lay the groundwork for your for your for your journey, and when folks think about entrepreneurship, they think about it in the modern sense. But talk, let's talk about it back then. You know, a number of years ago, we're not going to say how many, but people could do the math here. But the non traditional sense of entrepreneurship, your dad was a, a a for all intents and purposes a solo business owner, Correct. going through the the growth, the trials and tribulations. What was one of those lessons? Like you look back on it now, after your years of experience, that you saw your dad go through, that you said, "Wow, I, I didn't even think about it back then, and now I see what my dad did." And I absorbed that lesson and applied it during my career.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I, I learned something that. Um, well, here's the headline. I learned that it's great to have a job. It's better to create jobs. Um, it, it was fun to see him not only have good years and thrive, but it was fun to see him engage other people, hire other people, give them a give them a fair or better than fair wage and you know, benefit their families. Uh, the other thing I really learned, Adam, and I learned it while I was still there, not after I left, I would travel with him when he'd go out to, to make sales calls on grain brokers and people who were buying buying grain. <laughs> and I learned real early that if you don't sell anything, nothing happens. I mean, mm-hmm. you produce all the corn or produce all the widgets you want. But if you're if there's not a market for it, if you're not creating demand for it, uh, if you're not creating a position in the market that warrants you versus somebody else, things aren't too good. <laughs> and and it captured my fascination with the whole field of sales, uh, marketing. Um, he later started a small manufacturing business. I traveled with him when he was doing those sales calls too. And that's where I really started to get fascinated with the whole thing of brand management, which, you know, in the... The '60s was kind of a new, growing phenomenon.
1: Of course, did did your dad expect you to follow in his footsteps in the family business?
0: I think he would have liked for me to, but um, and he and I had a great relationship, and I it just it, I didn't have an interest in doing small time a small time business in Foley. Love Foley. But I had dreams and aspirations of getting in marketing and brand management. Quite frankly, long-term dreams of being in Atlanta, always fascinated by the city. So I'm thinking about companies like Delta and Coke and et cetera. Um, So no, he and I reached an agreement pretty early before I went to college that I would not be coming back to his business.
1: Had that sit with him.
0: It was fine. In fact, um, <clears throat> when I finished my undergraduate degree at Auburn, I needed to borrow money because uh, I decided to go to Northwestern to get a graduate degree. And, you know, he was all in, he co-signed the loan. I love uh, helped me do that because if I, if I had not borrowed that money, I would have, I would have never gone to Northwestern. So no, he was all in.
1: That's awesome. So your first job out of school working for Texas Instruments and I think you were there for about a year. Um, did that time fortify your belief that you were going to stay in marketing in this world? What was that first job like coming out it, of school? It, it Expectations versus reality.
0: Yeah. I had several opportunities coming out of grad school, but most of them were in the Northeast and the Midwest. And no offense to anyone who lives in those areas, but being from the South, I wanted to get back to the South. And, um, I had an opportunity to join Texas Instruments in a brand new group, consumer group they had formed. They called it a Semiconductor Group, where they were attempting to market for the first time ever for them uh, business to consumer handheld calculators.
1: TI is the TI model, yeah, great TI eighty (laughs) three.
0: It was it was the Apple of our day, you know, it was the iPhone of our day, and uh, so I went into that group, and I within a year. I got exposed to direct response marketing using magazines and direct mail. Again, you don't sell anything. Nothing happens. But culturally, uh, what I discovered was TI was very engineering focused. And they didn't really get the whole idea of building a brand, building a product proposition where you could actually get a premium price for it. And so we're we're actually moving goods, moving high volumes of, of calculators. And my my responsibility was scientific calculators. So I mm-hmm. was marketing to engineers and mathematicians, architects, etc. And we're selling them. Oh, well, they start wanting to reduce the price, um, which in my mind, after coming through graduate school and studying great brands, was counterintuitive. But what do you want to do if you have a great brand? You build its product. Is perceived value and get a premium price mm-hmm. frustrated me and uh, i was only there about a year and the phone rang one night i'm still in the office and it was dan howells who was director of marketing for six Flags river texas
1: he called you at your in your office Cause, cause yeah. back then that's probably the only number he had to reach you at <laughs> right he <laughs> they probably went through the directory right it was like well,
0: the, i actually went through his brother because ah. i had gone to grad school with his brother uh, there you go. Uh, so you had
1: the person. It wasn't just a, a, a cold, a complete cold no, call, no, no. right? Cold of course.
0: Call. He found out about oh. me through his brother. <laughs> and he said, it. look, I don't know how it's going over there at TI, but I need a sales and promotions manager here at park. <laughs> Would you have an interest in talking? So the long of the short story was, I said, you know what? If there's any company that's brand oriented at Six Flags, they were actually very good at it. And I interviewed for a whole day. And at the end of the day, they offered me the job and I took it.
1: Now, now, now back then, was, was there a concern about, hey, you know, back then it was one of those things where like you don't leave a company after, you know, one year or, or you know, it was people who work at Ford forever or GE. Did that go through your mind at all or were you like, no, this is a better opportunity. It's fo- it's more focused on what I envision my career directory going. And you know what? I'm going to do it.
0: it. It was the latter. Um, uh, first of all, the people <coughs> yeah, were gracious. I told them that I wanted to go there, why I wanted to go there, more brand-oriented culture. I felt like I learned something fresh at Six Flags, which I certainly did. And, and the corporate VP of marketing for Six Flags had a brand background. I, I saw in him a potential really good mentor. And and Dan Howells, who was the director of marketing flag, at Six Flags over Texas, had gone through the same program I went through Northwestern. So, I. I I liked him and I had a feeling I'd probably learn something from him. So no, it, it, it wasn't a problem. And I, I went because I felt like I'd it'd be another step to really learning something. Yes.
1: That's and that's interesting. So let's talk about that time at Six Flags for for a moment. And I could only assume that was a great stepping point in learning about customer centric brand marketing. Yes. Um hospitality. Yes. Um, but I also want to get a sense of what you learn about leadership and and how that laid the groundwork for the future. Yes.
0: Well, at the time, I think Six Flags had six or seven parks, and I got to interface with not only the, the leaders at the, the uh, Texas park and then later the Georgia park as I got sent to Georgia in 1977, uh, but I also got to interact with leaders in, in almost all the parks. And I saw the whole dichotomy of leadership style. Um, I saw leaders who were very strategic focused. I saw leaders who, quite frankly, didn't show great value um, to their people. Um, I, show, I saw leaders who were very focused on customer-centric data and in, informing uh, the, 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 the brand and making decisions around the brand, which was terrific learning. I saw the whole use of media mix. I saw the use of promotional partners. But I, but I really, really took away from those seven years and the last four were in Atlanta, was the dichotomy of different kind of leadership styles, and uh, I, there were some that were heavy-handed. For example, I didn't like
1: them. Right, more old school tactics. Uh,
0: There were some. Unfortunately, in my four years at Six Flags over Georgia, I ended up working for a guy, Spurgeon Richardson, who was not heavy-handed. In fact, was light-handed in the sense that he empowered his team, showed confidence to his team, gave us a lot of room to experiment, innovate. And he, I I got to do some stuff. Six Flags of Georgia, the park had never done before. And this is a big operation, 2.8 million people a year visiting. Yeah. He he gave me the freedom to experiment and use things, do things I'd never done before. Unfortunately, most of them worked. (laughs) Um, so that was, a, that was an awesome learning. It was the first of one of those experiences where, you know what, if you attract great t- talent to your team, and I would, I'm not saying that I was necessarily great talent, but in Spurgeon's mind, if he attracted the team he wanted, he was going to be thoroughly involved in planning, but he's going to give them a lot of room to do the work. And that was a major takeaway from Six way. Plus the whole, the whole cultural context of developing a brand that is customer centric. That's trying to respond to the customer, keep the brand fresh, relevant, etc.
1: Steve, what was one of those those hard those hard lessons learned the hard way during your time at Six Flags? I mean, let's talk about mistakes because I don't think we talk about mistakes enough yeah. and, and yeah. how we learn and grow from them.
0: Well, it's interesting. I had an experience with a promotion, a couple of promotions at Six Flags. They were discount promotions. Um, one was with Coke. I forget what the other one was, but they were discount ticket offers. And they, quite frankly, they worked too well. Um, they generated a lot of gate, a lot of traffic, but they actually hurt our cash flow. And, um, (laughs) ironically in my second year Chick-fil-A, if you recall from my book, uh, I had a similar experience with a promotion that that, Followed all the norms of fast food marketing with discounts, coupons, and newspapers and direct mail, and it worked too well, and and it went over.
1: And worked budget. too well.
0: <laughs> they worked too well, and it went over budget by two million dollars, which back then was Whoops. a lot of money. So it's interesting how apparently I'm a slow learner. In both of those organizations, I learned this whole idea of discounting and couponing. Number one, you can't control it. It can get out of hand. Number two, you create a customer dependency upon dependency upon it. And related to that, you actually undermine the perceived value of your brand. Must not be worth full price. Mm-hmm. And um, and so after that experience, six flags, and we come back to the park. Um, I I went to Spurgeon and I said, Look, I want to see if we can't develop um hospitality experience, in park experiences. And a communications campaign that positions the park as being worth full price. Short of it is, we developed, um, we did develop a hospitality strategy. Spurge fully embraced it. He got behind it. We started putting more events in the park that demanded, that didn't demand, but made you want to pay concerts. Right. The, numbers,
1: value. the value, value,
0: added value. People pay paying <clears the> price. <throat> and then we develop an advertising campaign which actually became so popular, other Six Flags parks picked it up. It was called Hug Your Kids the Six Flags Way. And it was all about the emotional bond-building experience of going to Six Flags with your kids and your family. And our our percentage of full price within a year shifted substantially up. We became less dependent on discounting, couponing, and I carried that even though I made that mistake in 1982 at, at Chick Fil A, that experience I hearken back to that experience after the mistake at Chick Fil A. Yeah, and I that said, "That is a no, tremendous." I'm not, I'm not gonna, I am not going to be a part of discounting and couponing the Chick Fil A product and the brand. Uh, we're not going to market this business like everybody else in the fast food business, and that was a major turning point in the business.
1: Wow, master, master class right here, folks. For anyone listening, so let's talk about that transition to Chick Fil A. Did, did how did they come knocking? The the, the cow huff was knocking well, on the door.
0: Tell you this part part of the story is very personal. Um, our children were involved in a Christian school, and we had a major building program, and I was chairman of the building program. Now, I'm only twenty eight or twenty nine, and I'm doing. Don't ask me why our pastor asked me to do it, but I was. Um and, and Adam, quite frankly, it was it was kind of a God thing because um I actually was not a very generous person. I had pretty tight hands when it came to money. And um I'll, I'll abbreviate the story because it, it spread over several weeks. Um but I came across a passage in Malachi 3, 8 through 12, where, where God was challenging the Israelites, you're robbing from me. And Malachi said, hey, how are we robbing you? And he said, you're robbing me in tithes and offerings. And he said, I want you to test me in this because the, the, the actual promise I have for you is if you'll quit doing that, if you'll honor tithes and offerings, I'll bless you beyond your wildest imagination. Now, everybody have hot points in their spiritual walk, but that was one for me. I got convicted about that. Um, we actually changed our pledge And I'm telling you this because after we turned in a new pledge, quite frankly, I knew unless God did something, we weren't going to be able to do it. Two days after that is when Jimmy Collins, who was the COO for Chick-fil-A, calls me and said, would you like to talk to us because we're trying to build a marketing department and we need a marketing director. Now, um, it wasn't until months later I told him about that personal experience. And my, so my reaction was, sure, I'd love to talk because I'd already met them. I knew a lot of them. We tried to convince them to build a Chick Fil A Chick-fil-A unit in the park, and that they didn't want to. That didn't work out. But I'd gotten to know the business and some of the key personalities. And like I said earlier, I interviewed with Chick uh, Six Flags for one day and got the job. I thought, you know what, two or three days, if nothing else, I'm going to learn something.
1: And network and meet some right, folks and understand network. the business. Yeah,
0: and and here they are, private business culture. I like. I've been bi <coughs> in six flags. I've been in public companies, and let's do it. So I'll I'll I start the conversations with them in August of 1980. Adam, I'll jump forward. It's now December. I'm still interviewing. I'm um, going into my fifth month. I'm sitting through at Kathy's office who is the chairman and founder of Chick-fil-A and he's probably about 60 okay quite frankly a very sweet man and I looked at Tru and I said true this whole process is you guys have been incredibly thorough generous with your time but a I'm with myself okay I, <laughs> I actually have a job I still enjoy. Uh, what are you looking for in the ideal market in Canada? Am I the guy? And he looked at me with a cold stare and he says, I have no idea. All I know is I don't want to do it. (laughs) Long pause. And then he says, however, if we invite you to come here, it's because we know that we can trust you and we can have fun together. I'm more more interested in who you are. He says, because if we ask you to come here, my intent is you're never going to go anywhere else. Okay, there's the second bomb. I've already had four jobs in an eight-year career. And then he closes with this. He said, this is the most important decision we make around here is who we invite into the organization. Because we don't train culture here, we hire it. We try to attract people to the business that already have a predisposed alignment with the values and the principles of the business. I'm trusting Jimmy and others to figure out whether you can do the work Skill set. I'm more concerned about. Thirty years from now, are we going to still like each other and enjoy working together? And and two mo- two weeks later, they they offer me the job, and I joined them in January 1981.
1: Wow. I want to I want to pause on that for a second because there's so much gold within those last couple of minutes of what you talked about. And I think that's kind of a hot topic now where folks are this big is, you know, hire for culture, train for skill. And obviously that, that applies to certain roles, certain jobs. And it also assumes you're coming to the table with experience and skill set, right? I wouldn't apply that to my doctor, but like, my doctor is awesome. He's really fun to hang out with, but I don't know about his, his, his skills, right? Like, let's, let's call it what it is. Hey, everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interceller the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, InterSeller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. So that process took a while because they really wanted to understand who you are. and your values. Do you remember any of the questions or those conversations that they, because values, well, we'll we'll get into the whole faith conversation about Chick-fil-A and why it's so important. How did did those conversations work? So that, was it the rapport? Was it, what was it that they were able to assess your values?
0: First of all, they had me probably spend time with over 20 different leaders in the business. Now they've only got a staff of about 35 at the time. And I probably spent time with about 20 of them. I spent time with some actual talk about
1: it long interview process.
0: Yes. So, and I spent time with a couple of Chick fil A restaurant operators. So, part of what happens when you spend time with that many people, you start to get a sense of the kind of people that are in this business. Um, To your point about what kind of questions they ask, I assure you they didn't do anything that was illegal. They asked me questions about how do I like to spend my free time? What do I like to read? You know, what are you and your wife like to do when you travel? Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell me about some of your experiences at TI and Six Flags that really helped shape your career, frame the way you look at marketing. Um, How did you go about uh, recruiting, selecting, and developing the talent you had at Six Flags? I noticed you got a staff of about 50 people. Okay. So, I mean, they're not going around the edges. They're going into relevant conversations, but they're really trying to get a handle on what's important to me. And w- when we get down to it, um, Adam, you can simplify what's important to people basically by looking at two things, their calendar and their checkbook. And uh, in a roundabout way, they're they're trying to get a handle on, okay, how's this guy spend his time and his money? How's he treat his wife? Um, How's he? How's he talk about his children? What's his aspirations for his career, etc. And um, they're just, they, they had a very thorough process. They still do process. Um, in fact, Dan, Kathy, who's Truett's oldest son, says it's probably easier to get into the Marines than it is to get into Chick Fil A. <laughs> um, but they're still committed. The most important decision they make is who they invite into. Into the family, into the Chick Fil A.
1: Tremendous insight right there, especially in this world where there's so much feedback from candidates on why is the process taking so long and why do I have to meet so many people? And I always flip it back too and say, there's a due diligence on the candidate side as well yes. to really see if this is going to be the right place yeah. for them. Well, don't me, rush it. Don't undersell it. Right?
0: Yes. Let me let me add one more thing to this. Please. I, I gave a speech last week and I got a question in the same arena and and I made the point. I said, look. First of all, a job is great, but it's better to create a job. But then it's even better if you can create opportunities for people that lead to a career. But then it's even better than that. It's if you can create jobs and careers that actually become somebody's calling. Now, when I decided to go to Chick-fil-A, I, I don't know that I saw it as a calling. But after I was there a while, I was part of the process of writing The Corporate Purpose. I understood it better. I understood what we wanted to do in the marketplace in terms of serving customers. Uh, It it became for me. And I think for a lot of people, Chick-fil-A became a calling. Now what do I mean by that? The career became a platform to do more than just my job. It became a platform to serve my family, to serve other people, to serve the community, Mm -hmm. to serve the church, Mm -hmm. uh, to serve other ministries that we cared about or other organizations in Atlanta. Uh, the Chick-fil-A name and brand carried weight that gave us a platform and gives virtually anybody a Chick-fil-A platform to serve, not only in the business, but outside of the business. So that that's what I mean by the whole point of creating a calling for people.
1: I love it. So we spoke about the culture. Let's talk about the brand for a little bit. And I want to talk about that painting behind you, um, the the origin of it coming from the, from the Richards Group. I'd love if you could share that story of where that came from.
0: Sure. Well, for the first... Five or six years I was at Chick-fil-A, we were only in the mall business. Um, n- you need to remember that. We only had stores and malls. It wasn't until 1986, we built our first store out on the street in Atlanta. So from a marketing perspective for the first, first six years or so, we we're focused on how do we maximize the mall as a medium? In other words, we have a captive audience. How do we market in the context of a, of a captive audience environment? Now on the street, we have to give people compelling reasons to go buy McDonald's or Burger King or anyone else mm-hmm. to, to Chick Fil A, and we knew from research that even in Atlanta, less than six percent six percent of people in Atlanta had unaided awareness of Chick Fil A.
1: Didn't know who we you had,
0: are. We had less than twenty percent trial in the market, so now we're going to put a store on the street, and now we're marketing a destination. Well, what is the upshot of that? The upshot of that is you got to create a story a compelling story around the brand of Chick-fil-A. Why is why do you want to come here versus someplace else? So we had to start the process of building a marketing support system to build the brand and support operators to drive traffic to the restaurants. And we chose to do it in a way that wasn't chasing transactions because of the coupon experience. We weren't going to mm-hmm. do it by discounting or couponing. We were going to do it through unconventional marketing ways. We use free food. We use VR guest cards. We cut catered food at events free. Um, We serve serve the public uh, community organizations with free food for meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So we built built ground-level awareness that we were there, but it was through the experience of having Chick-fil-A food and interacting with the talent that worked in those stores and in the restaurants. Okay, so by the mid-90s, we have over 500 freestanders open by then. Roughly 10 years, we're up to over 500 freestanders. Most of them are in the southern, southeast belt, nine states. We'd already reached the consensus that we were focused on marketing support on equipping the operators to build the business. They were going to be the primary marketing agents of the business, and I discussed this in the book. Interesting. Like a pyramid, we built the marketing programs and funding from the restaurants up, not from the home office down. So the upshot of that is we were, we had spent over 10 years equipping operators how to, how to build the brand and create awareness
1: in the community at
0: mm-hmm. and in the community. Okay. So by the mid-90s, we've got enough restaurants now there are certain things operators can't do for themselves, which at the top of the pyramid we just named the awareness.
1: It. Right. Correct. The brand, awareness. brand awareness.
0: Build brand awareness and we label it national. Okay. What can we do that only we can do? A lot of things, menu innovation, later down the road, hospitality innovation, store design, et cetera, et cetera. Well, one of them is how are we going to use media? Because we're now a point we need we need umbrella coverage
1: some air cover
0: air cover for these guys we do an agency search we pick the richards group out of dallas after a very thorough process two of my guys led it i didn't get involved in it until they said we recommend the richards group the three of us go to the richards group we hire them Stan richards made a commitment to us it was private company Culturally, very similar.
1: Founder to and chief creative officer that of the Richards Group. For anyone uh, chief creative officer. paying attention.
0: And uh, he made a promise to us, said, you're not going to see any creative that I have not personally approved." Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. i heard that before. i heard that
0: before. And we told them, look, we're not going to be your business, biggest client. All right? We don't have that money, sh- money to spend on media. But what we are willing to do is pay for great creative. We want creative that's got to bust out of the pack. Because they're, basically, everybody in the fast food business, all they all look the same. They show food and product and change logos. and it could The be king anybody. or a clown. Yeah, it could be anybody. So we hire them. And as the major media platform, the only one we could afford, we went to billboards and we went to 3D billboards. And we experimented with two or three creative concepts that were a big hit in Dallas a uh, rubber chicken up on the billboard. And the headline was, if it's not Chick-fil-A, it's a joke. Uh, big mm-hmm. rubber chicken. I had another one in Atlanta. We opened our first double drive-thru. We bought a board right by the store. And we got Wait. two 3D board cars coming through the board. Um, Chick-fil-A drive-thru here. Real simple. How did,
1: how- How did they they find rubber chickens that big? (laughs) I can't imagine that process.
0: They were were actually fiberglass. It was actually fiberglass. Anyway, (laughs) so they're starting to hit some home runs with their creative force. And about nine months into our relationship, they send us six new board concepts because basically that's all we're doing. One of them is this thing behind me, pencil drawing, eat more chicken, two cows. It's laying on my desk. I, when I see it, I absolutely go nuts laughing. We run it in Atlanta. It's at the same time we're about to enter our first sponsorship agreement with Peach Bowl, become the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. We need creative. Mm-hmm. This might be the answer. Uh, the board in Atlanta went up two, one month before the Summer Olympics. The buzz the brand got during the summer of that ninety-six was unbelievable. We put it we said, let's put this same board up, exactly the same board in our top twenty markets. We'll pay for it. We'll tell the operators, we're putting it up, we're gonna pay for it for three months. If you like it, then you can keep it up, you pay for it.
1: You continue. Yep.
0: Well they did. It was a huge hit. We even had we even had two two of the cows, fiberglass cows stolen off a board in Chattanooga, and we got all kinds of CNN and API AP wire service coverage. We knew we had a winner. We went back to him and said, look, we think you got an idea that's bigger than a billboard. Would you would you flush this out where the cows are our brand, our bovine spokespeople? They're 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 the ambassadors for the brand. Uh, it's funny, it breaks through the clutter, it's taking a pot shot at the burger guys without being offensive. We love it. What's it look like in other media in platforms, good in the store, everything. They did that. And three months later, they showed us stuff we absolutely loved. And so the short of that story is I got to work with them for 22 years on keeping that campaign fresh, funny, relevant. Yeah,
1: that's a good client. Yeah, That's a good client right yeah. there. Well, and good, and, and just kind of on, on the on the, on the flip side of that, curious because I'm in a service based business too. What did they do well as far as managing that relationship with you and Chick-fil-A? Great question, well? man.
0: One of the things uh, he did, Stan did, was every time they, they worked on new creative for us in a four-month cycle. So we were committed to keeping the creative fresh. So we'd see fresh campaign ideas every four months. We'd come to their office. And he would, every time he would assign six creative teams, art director and writer, six teams to work on the next campaign idea. May the best team win. And we (laughs) would only see the stuff Stan loved. And um, so, first of all, we saw a lot of, we had a lot of creative options to look at, none of which he didn't like. But, I, but the, one of the unique things about them was if we, if we didn't think, see anything we liked, and by the way, the test was pretty simple. If we didn't laugh, we didn't like it. Um, if, there's stuff, if we didn't see anything we liked, we said, stand, we just don't think you're hitting it. No argument, no pushback, no attempt to sell us on something, which I'd been through with other agents. Oh, you're not getting it. This said, no problem. We'll go back, we'll do it over. And uh, now that didn't happen very often, but it did happen two or three times in my total career time with them. And they understood our priority was great creative. They understood it had to fit the brand. It had to, it had to fit the manifesto, which was a strategic platform for the campaign. And if we didn't think it did all that, no problem. And the service team, uh, the account team on the business, Went with us to all of, I mean, we have focus groups, they're there. Uh, we go out and have major regional or national meetings with operators. They're just, they there. They're there. So they embedded themselves in the business. They listened to customers. They listened to the operators. So when they came to us and great creative, it was almost always on strategy. And it was used because they
1: understood the business and they listened and watched before yes. they didn't they didn't create based on their preconceived notions of what they thought the consumer would want. They actually went out and watched yes. and listened and observed. Yes. That's and, that's and, incredible. And
0: they understood that we and they <laughs> together had stumbled onto an idea that was an iconic idea and they wanted to be a good steward of it
1: fascinating let's shift let's shift gears for a moment i want to talk about what it means biblical culture um and up here on the northeast it was one of those things when the chick-fil-a started coming up here it took us a hot minute to be like wait a minute it's closed on sunday <laughs> and to wrap our heads around the re- it, it was interesting right yeah. and it's also an amazing concept that a store could do so, uh, a brand could do so well being open six out of seven days a week because of that commitment to the faith yeah. i love if you could share with the audience the the, the ethos and the thought behind having a a a biblical corporate culture and maybe some of the challenges that you had when you start to expand outside of your, your comfort zone.
0: Yeah. Well, to understand that you've got to go all the way back to the founder. Um, Truett Cathy, um, was a believer. Uh, he, he was a professed Christ follower or was he on a soapbox talking about it? No, he believed in living out his faith. Uh, about, he believed yeah. in earning the right to be asked, why are you different? Um, now, close Sunday was probably one of the most overt things he did. Um, and that happened because he and his brother started his first restaurant in South Atlanta called the Dwarf House. Uh, it was a diner. It was small, that's the name. And literally, after the first six days of operation, Saturday night, they looked at each other and said, George said, I don't want to work tomorrow. And his brother, Ben, said, I don't either. And George said, well, you know what? I don't want to ask our people to work if we're not willing to work. Let's close. And Truett would often say when he gave speeches that it, he, they decided that if they could make a good living in six days, then they were on the wrong business.
1: Love it. Yeah,
0: you know, which is completely illogical. Uh, and secondly, they learned very quickly that having a day when it was completely shut down was were, whether people chose to worship or not. It was good for the it was good for the health of the business. It was good for the health and social well-being of the, of the team members, the employees. Um, and over time, he also learned it actually helped him attract better people. Um, he, and I mean by that, it helped him. goes with,
1: back to values.
0: Yeah. It, 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 it implicitly attracted people that had similar values. Exactly. So um, being closed on Sunday was never an issue. Still is not an issue. Non-negotiable. Um, I think last year, their average store volume Average store volume was about eight million dollars. So he was right; they're doing okay in six days. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, we can make good work.
0: In terms of how that plays out on the culture, um, it is a it, it is a inclusive, open culture. There's no discrimination. Uh, but people understand, hey, this this is what this business stands for. I mean, the corporate purpose is very clear, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and have a positive influence on all that come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Okay, if you don't like corporate purpose, you're probably not going to interview. Okay? No. So um, that's right up front. So people understand the kind of environment they're walking into. They understand the kind of man they're coming to work for in the case of Shroo. Um but what ways that plays out, and I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but over time I realized a lot of truth's behaviors and values in the business mirrored what Christ talked at the Sermon on the Mount. Treated people with respect, showed people mercy, patience, understanding, uh, value, dignity, respect, respect. Um, and he, he helpful, supportive. I, I want you to have I want you to have a career and as I said earlier, I want you to have a job where it actually becomes a calling and you feel led to be here and you don't want to leave. Um, so what happens if you have clarity about your culture, let me get to the, the real benefit of it. If you have clarity about your culture, and what I mean by that is the purpose, why you exist, which I just quoted. The key values that are important to the man, the leader, things like teamwork, stewardship, integrity, fun, um, excellence, those were the top five. What happens if those are very, very clear and they see leaders living those things out? Well, what happens is people become empowered to make more decisions on their own. They know what's important. They know what's inbounds and what's out of bounds um they they become implicit, implicitly better recruiters and vetters of potential talents when they're interviewing potential people and what what happened over time one of the benefits that i noticed at Chick-fil-A was and and i experienced it was it was an incredibly innovative environment because people understood why do we exist what's really important customers king um we want to treat people out outer dignity respect. Now, how do we do that? How do we bring that alive in the in the business, not only at the home office, but more importantly, how do we bring that alive in the experience people have at the Chick-fil-A stores? Um leads to things like second mile service, uh menu innovation, menu that is actually fresh food made in every restaurant every day, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just all those little things that start to add up that drive innovation. and and keeping the brand. Love this
1: insight. Incredible insight, Steve. How, how hard was that decision to end, and your incredibly long successful run at Chick-fil-A? I'm I'm sure, I'm sure it was a decision that, that came over time after consulting with your family. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that moment.
0: Well, it was difficult here. It was, it was the intersection of what am I going to do long-term and what is, was Dan Cathy, who succeeded his father as the chairman, want to do. And um, by the time I was approaching 65, and not only me, but several of our, our executive leadership team members. We it's also had, a testament
1: to the company and had people there for 30 years. Oh, Jeez. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the, yeah. you just touched on the, the issue. The issue was we had deep bench. I mean, I had six direct reports, at least three of them. Could have taken my job. Fully qualified, capable, Taking my job.
1: They're ready to step up. They're ready to
0: step up. Well, we got those kind of people all over the business. And so how long am I going to hang around that keeps somebody else from having an opportunity to experience what I experienced? Same thing in finance or the same thing in IT or the same thing in supply. Mm -hmm. We got this all over the business. And it took over a year with Dan and our executive team sitting around the table saying, okay, what's in the best, what's, what's in the best interest of business? How do we balance that? Well, what do you guys want to do? And so the short of it was uh, we agreed that when we hit our 65th birthday year, at the end of that year, we would leave. Now, did I want to leave? No, I was having, I was having a lot of fun. Brain had never been hotter. The, the campaigns rolling our rolling college footballs rolling the menu is good times good, good times but uh what what is a better time to leave than that
1: you go know, out on top
0: no yeah, no no muddy footprints
1: I wish Tom Brady got that message, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. I'm not, leaving a mess for, I'm not leaving a mess for my successor. The brand has mm-hmm. momentum.
1: You set them up for success.
0: Correct. So then what Dan did to his credit was asked two or three of us uh, to stay on the board because he he had formed a not just an advisory board, but it evolved. It became a, a fiduciary board. So I, th- I served three more years on the board. So I still had interaction with leaders. I still had mentoring roles with key leaders. Um, quite frankly, I didn't have to spend any, much mentoring time with my successor because he'd already been on my leadership team for over a decade. And he, mm-hmm. he knew what we were doing. He knew why we were doing it.
1: He knew the playbook. He
0: knew the playbook. And um, so then That's tremendous. after 38 years, you had it all up, including the board. I decided I'm going to walk away. I wrote, I wrote my book uh, in 2019 COVID kind of slowed it. Thank you very much. Covert cows and Chick-fil-A. Uh, COVID we'll kind of slowed, it, slowed my media tour. Um, but the book's done amazingly well, still selling well. And I still do speaking and a little consulting. And so I'm having, I'm still having fun, but in a, a fresh arena.
1: I, I, I love it. And the favorite you-
0: Part of what I do now is interacting with, the next generation of
1: entrepreneurs. Uh, And what's, what's that, and what's that, what's that spotlight? What's that, what's that warm feel good feel? What's that warm feeling inside from all these conversations? If you were going to sum it up, that thing that gives you the optimism and the hope about the young entrepreneurs out there, Steve.
0: Well, I think the optimism is that there's a lot of them out there. A lot of men and women who actually want, want to create jobs and not just have a job who want an environment where they can serve other people and create an environment for other people to thrive, which is what Trump did with Chick-fil-A. And so I get a kick out of hanging around men and women who, in in, in a large sense, still kind of think and have aspirations the same as he did, the same as my dad did. And uh, I'm I'm in a position to say, okay, now do you want a, a brand, a business that's just going to chase transactions and money, or do you want a business that's going to, focus on building relationships, creating relational value, emotional connection with people, and therefore your brain is worth more, people recommend it more, and they use it more often. And a lot of them, that's what they want. But that is much harder than a business that's just chasing transactions.
1: Right. Of course, it takes more real work. It takes the real work. real thinking. Relationships go. are real work. Real work. Yep, I love it, and I got to ask you this. You know, when I think about your story in your career, the words loyalty, values, and principles come to mind. What do you want your legacy to be when your time has come?
0: Well, now this how is an odd answer, Adam, but I don't care about my legacy. <laughs> um, I, I think the the bigger issue is how to how did I represent Christ? Um, how did I represent Truett? Uh, And the Chick-fil-A purpose, did I live that out? So um, if if I have any legacy, I I really mean this. I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about the men and women that I got to associate with and work with. And what kind of life are they having? What kind of career are they having? What kind of impact are they having? Um, That's what I'm more interested in. And and that, that includes my own children and grandchildren. Love it. Yeah.
1: What a tremendous conversation this has been. I want I want to bring it home here. Th- this episode specifically has been a masterclass. This book <laughs> <Your God. laughs> this book is a masterclass right here. I want everyone to check this book out. We'll link it up in the comments too. Um, Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, How Faith, Cows, and Chicken Built an Iconic Brand, 30, 40, 50 years of lessons within here. But let me ask you this, Steve. What is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on daily? To be a mantra, something oh, you wake up this, with, something you repeat. Oh,
0: that's that's easy. Something that I used to be really, really bad at. Um, I used to be a very bad listener. Um, I, I had to interject my opinion and my recommendations early in any conversation. Best advice I ever got was was shut up. And the longer you're quieter, the longer you're quiet, the smarter you're going to get. And I, I learned it's absolutely true. I, I developed, I intentionally developed the habit in meetings with my team, out on the road with operators, listen hard, listen slowly, listen patiently, and try to be the last person that says anything. And what I discovered is the longer I stayed quiet, as I just said, the smarter I got. So it's I mindless. the best advice I ever got was. Just learn to listen well, and you'll be Sage a better advice. leader. You'll make better decisions, et cetera.
1: Sage advice for everyone out there. And Steve, last but not least, you look back on your incredible life, career, for those that you've empowered, for those that you have helped built, gratitude for your family, yes. your faith, your relationships. What keeps you focused? What is your beacon? steve robinson what is your north star in life
0: um it's really no different than what i've tried to do up to this point and that is to live out um what i think the bible teaches particularly what christ taught himself about how to live and how to represent him and how to interact with other people i mean um I, I think if, if I had people ask me all the time, if you had to recommend one book, what book would you recommend? And I have several I'd recommend, but it's always the Bible first. And I and Go I, back to Old Faithful. Yes. And I think there's certain chapters in the Bible that are incredibly management leadership focused. Uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, portions of the Psalms, uh, several of Peter's letters, particularly his letters to Timothy all about mentoring and developing Timothy as a leader. Um, And then at the top of the list, uh, Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5 from Christ. I mean, he describes there the behaviors he desires to see in his followers. So to answer your question, I'm not, I'm working hard to try to be someone that aligns with what he asks his followers to be in Matthew chapter 5. Now do, do I do it all the time? No. No. Sometimes on the golf course I don't behave. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think my North Star is as a believer someone incredibly thankful for the gift of, of uh, salvation through his son, through the wisdom, through his word. Uh, I just try to I just try to live what I've, I've learned, um, from others, but principally from the Word of God. And I thank you for asking that question.
1: Tremendous. And I thank you so much for joining us for the past hour. This has been incredible. Um, I want everyone to find out more about Steve Robinson at srobinsonconsulting.com. We'll link it up in the comments. As long as check out the book, we will link it up. This is a must-read for anyone out there. Steve, thank you so much for joining me. And everyone out there, if this episode resonated with you, sharing means caring, goes a long way. You can leave a review rating. I really appreciate it. You can find out more at thepodcast.com Follow us on all the social media channels. Remember, be good to yourself be better to others and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us,
0: it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing.
1: To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit
0: www.thepausecast.com.